Nice to be here again today. It's been a reasonable amount of time since I've been on your channel, but looking forward to updating your audience with what we've been doing at Jevoir because the company has evolved and transformed significantly, I think, since we were here last time. Uh, so we just completed a US 150 equity raise uh, with UBS and Canaccord. And this is really the last cog that underpins our ability to transition to three operating sites. Importantly, that we own 100% of. Uh, importantly, that are in Western jurisdictions, we're producing critical minerals, servicing industrial customers across the United States, Japan, and America, clearly, and, and Europe, in a way that uh, we believe underpins the energy transition in a meaningful way. Brilliant. Um, so Bryce, good, good, good to see you. Um, I, I'm going I'm to jump in here um, so we can get, get uh, what, I, what we want out of this uh, conversation, which is, one, just to remind people perhaps new to this kind of coming in, what the kind of three core projects are. We'll park Nico Young up for, for, for now, because I want to get to the meat of this. You, you've um, obviously press, uh, press release recently, the fact you've, you've done this 150 US raise. People are going, well, why are you doing that? I thought you didn't need money. Um, you know, and I'm kind of interested particularly about how you kind of structured that and what you're going to be doing with it. But so let's get back to the um, rest of my people, what the three projects are, uh, SMP, ICO, and obviously uh, JFO Finland. So um, give us a quick pricey of each of those, if you don't mind. Sure. So we acquired Jevoir Finland from Freeport Cobalt in about a year ago now that underpinned the prior equity raise. That was approximately a 200 US million dollar acquisition. So it's the uh, it's a share of the industrial cobalt and refining and manufacturing complex in Finland called Kokola. Uh, so this is the largest, lowest cost leading cobalt refinery in the world, certainly in the Western world, 15,000 tonnes capacity, of which 6,250 tonnes is ours. And then we have an advanced manufacturing business producing chemicals and powders attached to that facility. We also are restarting San Miguel Paulista in Brazil. So this is the only nickel cobalt refinery in Brazil, but also in Latin America. And there's actually obviously not a nickel cobalt refinery class one in the United States either. So a highly strategic facility. Uh, we're restarting that. That underpins the equity raise that I'm sure we'll touch on in the call uh, to restart that in Q1 2024. And Idaho Cobalt Operations, again, since I've been on the call last time, I think that we like to believe that we're a management team that outlines a strategy and we deliver and we restart. We had an opening ceremony in October this year around that site that involved Governor Little, Ambassador Sinondinos, the Australian ambassador to the United States. So that was a momentous occasion for the US. They haven't had a cobalt mine in generations and really exciting for us to be bringing that to fruition uh, up on the hill in Salmon at about 8,000 feet. So uh, obviously we're in the ramp up phase now and by the end of Q1 2023, we'll be in full capacity within Idaho at that site. Right. What's the, what's the, I'm trying to work out what the game plan is eventually for you guys, because like a big kind of ex-Glencore components of the team here, you've kind of got the, um, obviously the, the, the resource side of things in, in terms of Idaho and I guess a little Nico Young in Australia at some point, um, the refining components and then the, you know, creating actual, you know, pr you know products. Uh, side of things as well. You're going big, that's for sure. You've got to get these things off the ground um, and get these things up and running and get some cash flow going and sort of sort out the kind of the, the balance sheet side of things. But what's the end game? Do you keep keep building this thing out? Do you want to be the kind of go-to nickel cobalt company in the world? I mean, what's the plan? Well, I think why we identified and why we're doing in the public space what we are is that there, this energy transition is going to be really dynamic. 
And one day in 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to be the domain of the majors. It's going to be no different from any other capital intensive industry. And so the likes of BHP, Rio's, Anglo's, Valet, et cetera, or other groups that step aside, whether it's the lithium companies, they're going to be the, the groups that largely dominate this landscape. But today, fortune is going to favour the brave. And we do believe that there's a market opportunity for a group that is well capitalised, can access additional capital, both equity and debt, has solid funding partners, hence the relationship we have with Mercuria, one of the world's largest commodity traders, and also Australian Super, clearly another strong supporter in this last transaction. We want to grow and we want to grow, occupy that mid-cap space. That There really is a dearth of investment opportunities. There is no Falcon Bridge, there is no Inco, there is no Lion Oil. Those companies, that there is no MIM. Those companies that we kind of grew up with in our careers, that mid-cap is still vacant and so someone is going to fill that and certainly i mean we've got some strong competition uh, on the asx who are off to the who are forming that mid cap as there is in north america but i do believe that at jevois we've got the uh, we've got the organizational capacity and also uh the motivation and technical ability to to really move into that space also Right, and, and uh, you, you sort of mentioned sort of going back to the, the environment which you guys, your, your early careers grew up in. Today it feels like a slightly different environment. You know, people talk about not moving molecules around the globe in terms of um, processing, you know, but mining in one, one country and then, you know, sticking it on a ship and shipping it somewhere else to be processed and then shipping it somewhere else to be, you know, go through to the next f- the fa- phase um, of value creation. You've got three projects. You've got F- Finland, Idaho up in the US and, and Brazil. What are the missing pieces that we need to be so cognizant of in terms of what you're trying to build? We want to become larger. And I think that we also look at other commodities. So clearly we're excited by San Miguel because that's an entry into nickel. Uh, we, we've obviously, we've got a long pedigree and a long history of, in cobalt, and we're really excited about the future of cobalt and what that represents. But equally, I do believe in diversification, as does the board, the concept of geographical diversification, commodity diversification, customer diversification, uh, and having nickel in the portfolio, particularly an asset that was as uh, robust in the market in terms of competitive positioning as San Miguel, I think is really important. And over time, I think we can look at other areas in the battery thematic where we can potentially add value, whether it's hard rock on the, on the lithium side when valuations subside or whether it's other commodities that, where we can actually have a niche or where we can add value to customers. Okay, so that's a conscious decision to kind of have have kind of non non correlated assets in in the portfolio to you know risk mitigation etc. But the bit I'm trying to get to is like I'm just conscious that to let's talk let's talk about the money and what you're going to do with it because I think that gives you a nice building block to see where this thing could could go right because your valuation is is quite punchy it has been you know much much higher early, earlier in the year and I guess people are trying to figure out you know. Um, do you need to be backfilling that? Do you think that's fairly valued, etc.? So just, just just run us through the sort of terms of the the actual raise recently. You know who who was involved, and you know what's that cost you? So we raised one hundred and fifty US million dollars, and the reason we did so was really to retain one hundred percent of three geopolitically significant assets, and to have them unencumbered. So the unencumbered aspect isn't necessarily a popular argument. Everyone loves the concept of offtakes, but offtakes have real value. And Matthew, I've been coming and talking to you for a long time and I've always said that the theory of Jevois since day one has been open register, open offtake, insofar as we do believe that 
the dynamic is a bell curve or a hockey stick, it's going to get more intense. We're certainly seeing the pickup in focus and intensity and demand from the OEMs as they really look at raw material sourcing more carefully and more with a higher level of concern. And that's really what we're looking, this raise really underpins. It's about having the flexibility to have three operating assets that we maintain 100% control of ourselves. And that as we look forwards into 24, 24 and 2025, where the demand is projected and we anticipate based on the discussions we're having with OEMs to increase materially, it's really about retaining as much equity upside to that as we possibly can for ourselves and other shareholders. Right, but I think underlying the kind of recent market share performance seems to be a kind of concern that you, like lots of people, have been hurt and hit by increased costs. So did you need to raise this money now? Because you talked back in July about ICO being entirely funded, but some of the proceeds from this race seem to be going towards ICO. Some of the proceeds are funding the sustaining capex on ICO, which was always anticipated. The project capital was fully funded at Idaho. We issued $100 US million bond and we had 35 US equity from the last capital raise with the Freeport acquisition. So construction was fully funded. This is really about maintaining flexibility. So the raise is firstly about San Miguel Paulista, restarting San Miguel and having the flexibility to do so on our own terms without requiring a partner. So 80, 85 US of the proceeds is for San Miguel. And then there's an assumption on the Idaho sources and uses where we only sell 60% of the cobalt product in 2023. We want to have that flexibility. And what that means is that that allowing us to fund uh, the, the, the programs in Idaho as we build out the mine development capital across 2023, it gives, us, it gives the commercial team much more flexibility. So flexibility isn't the only reason why we chose to raise $150 million, but the discussions that we're having with US government are now different. The discussions we're having with OEMs are now different. The discussions we're having with MHP suppliers into San Miguel, different. Discussions that Greg Young and his commercial team are having with concentrate purchases from Idaho, again, different. Uh, as you know, it's just a very different conversation when you're fully funded, you've got 150 US additional capital in, in behind you. So that's not the only reason we chose to raise what we did, but it does change that dynamic. It does allow us to do things on our own terms. And importantly, it kicks it for touch in terms of that. I've been trading come raise for three months and it's not a fun place to be. And I can have disagreements with the equity markets about whether we're come raise or whether we're not. But the reality is the only way to fix that is to raise is to raise equity capital. And so we were looking at equity capital into the sites. Uh, obviously, we own 100% of each asset. Uh, we also looked at equity capital into the parent. Uh, which is ultimately what the board decided to execute on. And we thought very carefully about <clears throat> all the issues that have been spoken about in the media in terms of dilution and share price and offtake and flexibility. But at the end of the day, this is time to double down, if you like. The structure of the offer is essentially a rights issue with a place a preferential placement to existing holders. So uh, nobody gets diluted on an institutional basis unless they choose to. And this is the right time to really underpin the ability of the company to transition to have three operating sites on an unencumbered basis into 2024. Uh, I'm not a believer in drip feeding equity markets. I think that's the wrong strategy. Now, I get the fact that many in the junior sector who would come onto your show, that's the type of, they, they're, they're much more opportunistic in terms of how they raise capital. If the share price goes up, they'll put out capital whether they need it necessarily or not. 
We take a much more structured approach to how we raise capital. We go through the sources and uses in an excruciating amount of detail, both internally and with our bankers, and determine that there's a fully funded pathway. Because again, the type of equity we're raising now, I mean, we've got double-digit, long-only institutions who are coming on as part of the placement and also as part of the, the sub-underwrite process for the institutional tranche and also the retail tranche. These are large institutional investors who are writing quite often double-digit millions of dollars and they need visibility on funding. They don't want to fund an unfunded story. They don't want to have a company that says, okay, now we're going to come back to you in six months, nine months, 12 months. And the funding and the sources and uses was also conservative. So there's nothing in there on US government, despite the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act is now law. It's not a lobbying discussion. It's really a technical discussion with Treasury and the IRS. Uh, there's nothing in there on San Miguel in relation to debt. And we have a number of debt proposals associated with the process that we ran. Uh, over time, I fully expect that there will be some kind of working capital support in there for San Miguel Pulista. Uh, but it, right now, additional debt wasn't the answer. Um, partly, maybe we were trading at 50 cents because we'll come raise. Maybe we were trading there because of a perception on leverage. But either way, additional leverage wasn't the, the right approach at this particular point in time. So clearly, I like to think that we don't, that we're honest. Am I happy we're trading below the issue price? No, absolutely not. That's not part of the strategy. We're not happy we're here. But equally, does it change the decisions that underpin the decision to move forward and raise this amount of equity to move the company forwards? No. I mean, I said to the board at the time, there's going to be some noise. If the noise is positive, don't get too carried away. If the noise is negative, don't, let's not go and throw ourselves off bridges because we've got a long-term vision. Uh, we just have to get through this initial choppy period whilst we're in an underwrite period and while the, uh, we're essentially going to trade kind of sideways until we get through this. But what underpinned the decisions to raise one US 50 equity, build three projects under our own steam, that still stands and stands strong, I believe. Right. Okay. And, and, and understood. Okay. Every company starts from a, from a different position, you know, um, and, and therefore optionality in terms of how they raise the capital, how much it costs them, and, and different strategies apply. Understood. Um, I'm very much in your camp of get it when you can and get it, take as much as you can because uh, you don't want to be thinking about that every, or looking behind your well, we didn't uh, shoulder. We as much as we can, but we took enough. We didn't want to take a bite and then come back for another bite and tell people we didn't need another bite when. There's a potential if US government or if others don't drop into place, then this way we're fully funded and everything else is upside, which is the right way you want to present to institutional investors when you raise Fair point. equity. Fair point. But, here, but here's, the, here's the other component to this is um, the market needs to believe that the projects that you've got will make money, right? We've seen a lot of companies come on here. And I know part of your story is, is um, about... Um, exploration and and, uh, and and mining rather than the processing side, but um, some projects because of the kind of downward pressure on price of the commodity and upward pressure of the you know inflationary environment affecting all things. Well, you know a lot of the costs uh, that companies are looking at means that some projects become marginal overnight. They become marginal, and that's that's of a, a, a concern to people. How are you viewing your projects in this environment? I get the thematic that you fe you, you're feeding into, and the, and you know and you know I know your numbers are done at eight dollars nickel, and it's, it was eleven dollars last week. So it's positive, but how do you kind of what what measures are you taking to safeguard your ability to to remain profitable, to be profitable? 
I think it's really around selection of assets and the ability to execute and then the ability to operate. So if we look at San Miguel Paulista, what you spoke around with margin compression and the macro impacting that, we've actually got margin expansion in Brazil, which is why we're doing Brazil now. So we've got downward pressure on input costs associated with the, the, the raw material due to the rise of mixed hydroxide product coming out of Indonesia. We've got upward pressure on revenue, not only because of the nickel price, which you mentioned, uh, but because of premium, because of the fact that 25% of the class one global nickel market is in the Rilsk, and obviously Russia is now persona non grata on that community in the international community, and you are getting a significant disconnect in terms of how the product's trading. So the Tokantin's product, the electrolytic nickel, it is going to trade at a significant premium, we believe, and that premium is going to increase relative to other brands, not decrease. And obviously in the context of ESG, ESG now is it's an increasingly more important decision in terms of not only how investors allocate capital, but also how customers are buying product. Uh, San Miguel Paulista, it runs on hydro. It's going to be among the lowest car carbon nickel that's going to be available on the market to US OEMs and European OEMs, but obviously geographically more proximate to the United States. And there's real value uh, in this facility coming onto the market at a time where there's certainly a, a, a significantly rising demand. And I guess just touching on the other assets, I mean, Jevoir, Finland, we had two great quarters post-acquisition where we generated a 26, 27 US of EBITDA across two quarters. And then obviously the last quarter was disappointing uh, as we've had the downturn in the market. The reality of the business is it is the lowest cost, largest facility globally, and it is a fantastic business. Uh, but the, although we don't sell a lot of product into China, when China catches a cold, we do have an impact in terms of the cobalt market and certainly the way that the Chinese have been dumping cobalt outside China and affecting the received price. That has an impact on the business. But that's a cyclical impact, not a structural impact. China is not going to stay shut forever. COVID is locked down and zero COVID in China is not going to last forever. And finally, on Idaho, uh, this is an operating site, which obviously there's operating cost pressure. We articulated that in the equity raise where we're circa $10 million operating ahead of where the BFS would have been. Uh, now we're optimistic that over time, the pricing, the way that inflation flows through on pricing, we're going to see some commensurate benefits from that. I think $3 copper, most of your audience wouldn't invest using a $3 copper price. And ultimately we think a $25 cobalt price is also going to be proved conservative in the fullness of time. Uh, so we're doing well to manage the cost pressures. I think that the team to execute the construction for $107.5 US million in this environment in the United States, I think that's a fantastic effort. And I think the team's managing the costs well. Uh, but the reality is, is that the United States and this facility, it's a small facility, it's 2,000 tonnes, and that also underpins why we're looking to expand it, why we're drilling, why we're talking to the US government, why we want to make the mine bigger, and why ultimately the United States government also wants a domestic refinery in the United States, uh, because... But, but uh, if you don't mind, um, Bryce, I want, to, I want to stick with the money side of things, okay? Because you talked earlier about having a different sort of conversation when you've got money in the bank, right? You're, you're not on the back foot. But likewise, it's a different environment right now. And you talked about, you know, US critical minerals lists, et cetera, and the battery thematic we're, we're, we're talking about now is it's also a different, different type of conversation because of those things. Things seem to have changed because of the, the Russia-Ukraine situation off the back of, you know, supply chain issues and rising costs through inflation and, um, quite frankly, 
frankly, uh, the whole, the, whole co the cost of COVID, uh, you know, it's, it's changed people's view of what's important and what's not. Some of the kind of non-utility-based commodities suffering a bit, battery metals seem to be doing well in terms of pricing, but not necessarily the equities market. You need to demonstrate where the, where the sales are coming from, who, which markets is it going to, you know, who's going to be buying this stuff? Because you're at that point now, you're, you're quite close to the, the, the money, but not there yet. So how, how, do, how do you communicate that, articulate that? Well, I think it's less, I mean, we are close to the money insofar as, I mean, we're generating 80, 90 US of revenue a quarter. So it's not like we're not in operations. But I mean, let me use a soundbite that I used during the recent equity raise presentation. And I guess following up from the time that I spent at LME, so I was there seeing all the usual bankers who I would see, but I also gate crashed some of the commercial teams meetings and met with our major customers and got a view in terms of what they're seeing. And simplistically, uh, nobody wants a thousand tons of cobalt in Q4 2022. All the OEMs want a thousand tons or more in Q1 2024. So we're at the cusp. We're really, really close um, to this curve, this time when that bell curve of demand upticks and upticks aggressively in a way that I don't believe the supply side is going to be able to respond adequately. So we're not there today. I mean, obviously we're in a very weak cobalt demand environment. We have been for the last three months, uh, hence why the price has tracked down to the low twenties and why we're also holding larger inventories than what we normally would because we don't want to sell into a weak market. But that's not going to last forever. And I think that the way that we've set up the business and the way that we're positioned uh, and the support we've now got from equity markets, the support we have from Mercuria on the working uh, on the US $150 million working capital line into Jevois, Finland, we're really well placed to take advantage of that with a high degree of flexibility in a way we simply wouldn't have been had we chosen not to execute this equity transaction. Right, and in terms of control of your company and control of the, the, the balance sheet, okay, we've seen a lot of mining operations, you know, trying to work out where to go for the money. They've had to come up with alternative financing, I think we, we call it, um, where you've seen OEMs, car manufacturers, actually moving upstream and taking chunks of equity pieces of uh, mining operations. Uh, for you, in terms of the financing available, obviously you've taken equity now. Debt would be the next logical step at 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 some point, presumably, or or is it? I mean, what what are the options available to you? Because you, you took you need to kind of continue this growth story. You're going to need capital for acquisitions. You're going to need capital for ramping things up. Um, so how how are you envisaging? managing and negotiating those sort of choppy waters? I think the key is that we don't need any more capital for the current portfolio. Like that was the basis of raising $150 million because that gives us a fully funded pathway. We're off to the races and then we've got three cash flow generating assets that are all on the sources side of the ledger, not the uses. So I guess that's the first point. Uh, if we look forwards, I think that we're getting to a point now where the capital alternatives do broaden. I mean, we're currently, we're currently heavily shorted, which... Uh, I look, the positive that I take out of that is that when we were sitting here three years ago or four years ago, Jevois would never have been able to be shorted. We had no capitalisation. We had no borrower in the stock. The fact that we're shorted now opens up opportunities like future convertible markets and other sources of capital. In terms of the strategic capital, we, we made a conscious decision not to raise $50 million by delivering it to an OEM versus raising 150 off our current shareholder base. 
That's not to say we're not going to have relationships, and obviously we do have existing relationships, sales relationships with OEMs and battery makers today. But in terms of maintaining flexibility and being able to really control our own destiny, now wasn't the time to, to sell ourselves short. Again, the, one of the analogies that I often use is that it's a game of musical chairs, and our competitors are busy frantically trying to take their chair out of the game and move it away from the table. They want to sign an offtake. They want the short-term share price reaction. They care about what their market value is going to be in two months, not two years, to be a little cynical. We care about what our investment and other shareholders' investment is going to be in two years, and we want to have a seat at the table. And how you have a seat at the table, he or she who controls product is king or queen. And that's what a lot of people on the supply side, there's a reason OEMs are going around the market while they're sprinkling their fairy dust and while they're securing as many units as they can, quite often the commercial terms associated with those agreements as an investor, you don't get visibility on that. You just get the headline saying that I've signed an offtake with X. Uh, you're only really gonna see the commercial consequences of that offtake in three years time once the company's trying to ramp up production or deliver volume into that contract and having to publish the commercial consequences of what they've agreed to. That's when you'll get visibility and you'll be able to form a view as to whether or not it was a good idea. Uh, we do believe that the relationship with the downstream industry is really important, uh, but there's a time and a place and we're going to extract the appropriate amount of economic rent for when we do uh, take our chair out of the game, so to speak. Okay, and so, so, talk, so talk to me about the t- timing here because I want us to see when this revenue starts flowing and you know when it starts ramping um, up it, in the context of a market which you say is... You know, last quarter's been a little, little, bit, little bit trickier for, for, for Cobalt. Uh, Nichols, I think, in the last week or so, you know, seen a bit of a, a bit of a recovery. Um, how, how do you kind of time the market? Because you've got the money now to kind of build at the pace you want to build it. Is it a case of, I believe in the, them- the thematic for, for both commodities, um, so we're just going to crack on because we'll be, we'll be feeding into a very big positive demand, or do you temper that a little bit? I don't think we need to temper because we have the ability, the volumes that we're bringing on on nickel, they're really small. I mean, one of the issues and one of the reasons why we didn't bring in a partner at the San Miguel Polista level, sure, it's a 25,000 tonne nickel refinery, we're starting at 10,000 tonnes. Most of the OEMs we're talking to want 20, 30, 40, 50,000 tonnes of nickel. So I think that the, the, the demand for nickel is clearly there. Uh, if we look on the other products, certainly bringing on... Uh, the cobalt from San Miguel Paulista, I mean, where we've got the, the market readily available for that. It's a different type of product that comes out of Finland, uh, goes into specialty steels, alloy steels, particularly in the United States. And we're only going to measure, we're only going to expand further as and when the market requires. So, for example, we're undertaking a bankable feasibility study to double the capacity of Cochlea from our 6,250 metric tonnes up to an additional 6,000 tonnes, uh, 12,250. But we're only going to do that in conjunction with when the market, I mean, not just needs, but is begging for the, for the units, essentially. When we're, not going to, we're not going to expand ahead of time and depress the overall market. Um, so that's not something we're moving ahead now with the Bankable Feasibility Study to retain the optionality to pull the trigger. But there's a number of condition precedents that would need to fall into place for us to do that. And that's a 2025 onwards story in terms of the expansion there. And how do you, we've seen a few companies, so, you know, 
make kind of big big moves to kind of capture more of the value chain. And, and you, you mentioned earlier about you know opportunity. You got to get these three things uh, over the line. And I think at some point you look at opportunities ahead of you and you say, right, okay, this makes sense for our portfolio. But in terms of where you see this market going and how you capture an entire kind of supply chains or, or, or revenue chains, more importantly, from big customers. I mean, can you do that? Will you ever be in a position to do that? I think it comes down to understanding what your niche is and where you can add value both to your own shareholders but also to customers because if you're not creating value, it's harder to extract greater economic rent. I guess we've identified that the refining step is going to be a bottleneck. So you've got a large number of feed materials that are flowing through a limited number of refineries or bottlenecks and then that's outflowing. So to take an example, uh, if we look at CAMs, I mean CAMs and PCAMs or we're not going to do that ourselves. PCAMs is something where we can potentially do so in cooperation with an automaker. We have the expertise within Finland. Uh, there was a non-compete with Umicore that expires shortly associated with the free previous Freeport sale. Uh, so PCAMs are somewhere in conjunction or in partnership with an OEM, we could do that. CAMs, I mean, there's some very well capitalized, very aggressive, particularly Chinese competitors in that space uh, and the chemistries are changing quickly, that means that I don't think it's necessarily uh, ripe for further further investment. The, the nickel industry is vertically integrated for a reason. Uh, so I, I do see value in vertical integration in nickel, but not at any cost. And clearly one of the benefits of the rise in MHP production from Indonesia is it opens up the ability to secure units in a way that just wasn't there six months ago. Okay, so you're talking to many certain institutional um, audience here, but there is a big chunk of, of retail in here too. So message for them is what? Stay the course? Stay the course. Uh, the, 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 the company is in good shape. Again, I like to think that we're not in the business of bullshitting people, so I would rather be not trading below issue. But equally, the, we're confident on what underpins the business. I do believe that... I mean, 12 months ago, I issued what was perceived to be an enormous amount of equity, and I had a lot of hate mail from retail saying that they would never share price would never recover. And then, you know, six months later, we're trading at a dollar. This time is not going to be no different, provided management delivers on what we say. We commissioned successfully Idaho. We restart San Miguel. Uh, we improve the inventory management at Jebwa, Finland, and demonstrate in conjunction with rising cobalt demand once China turns back on. Uh, that this is a real tier one business in the cobalt industry. Uh, with equity, equity performance will follow, and I'm confident that we're going to be in a position where we can actually start to participate in broader strategic discussions around the industry right now. I mean, the reality is, is that we're, we're highly undervalued, and whilst there's a, we, rate, we chose to raise equity at this level uh, via a rights issue so our shareholders could participate, we're certainly not in a position to to actively engage in industry consolidation off a share price where we are today. But our job as management is to fix that. Uh, we do believe that nothing has really changed in terms of the underlying vision of the company, the strategy of the company. And I think partly we've, 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 one of the reasons why we've been able to raise the level of capital we have is we do what we say. So we go and we say, this is the strategic plan. We, this is what we want to do with the money you're going to give us. And each time we've done that, We've, we've been able to come back the following time and demonstrate that we've delivered on key milestones, whether it's the construction of Idaho in a difficult period, uh, the acquisition of San Miguel, etc. So I do believe that 
the share price will recover. Again, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I try and manage the company in a way that I think is going to prove to be greatest value in two to three years' time on the assumption and the expectation that equity values will follow. Um, so that's certainly the way that we're looking at it as a board. We put in another, <clears throat> an additional $2 million of our own money in this last raise. We'd be up to double-digit millions of dollars. Again, there's unlikely to be many management teams and boards within your audience that, 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 that who've come into a company and put up that level of their own capital. Um, so we believe in what we're doing and I'd urge your audience to the extent they're shareholders to, to stay the course. Now is not the time to be running for the exit in my humble view.